The Westminster Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And our reading tonight is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. <clears throat> and this is Paul's immediate response to Timothy's report that he brings him on the church in Thessalonica. And this passage we're looking at tonight is concerned with glorifying God um, in the way that we live. And perhaps this section, this segment of this letter, shows us the sort of culture that the Thessalonians were living in, and perhaps not dissimilar to today. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a life, to live a holy life. Therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God." the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. May God bless his word to us tonight. Thanks, Jeff. Let's just pray as we come to the Lord's word. Father God, we thank you that your word contains what we need to know to have salvation in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it also contains instructions on how to live in order to please you. And so we do pray this evening as we uh, look at your word together, you would help us to understand what uh, you are saying to us. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, enable us to, to live this out so that in everything we would give you the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. But one of the, uh, the key doctrines of the uh, Protestant Church that resulted from the Reformation was that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And it was a response to what was perceived as the, uh, the teaching of the, the Catholic Church as being almost a, a salvation by works. And as an evangelical church today, we would point clearly to verses uh, such as Ephesians 2 uh, that says this, For it is by a grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast 
Now, one of the unfortunate consequences of an overfocus on that biblical truth is um, that the gospel can be reduced by some as almost just a, a ticket to heaven, as we were looking at this this morning with, with Mark. God has done the work for us through Jesus, um, and we just need to believe in him and we will have eternal life. Which is, of course, true, but it's clearly more than that. It's also easy, I think, to look down on those who are trying to live lives pleasing to God, um, knowing that they will never be good enough to earn his, uh, his, his salvation through that way, but actually are trying to do that through all sincerity. And actually in our desire to emphasize the gospel message of salvation by grace, the question we sometimes don't focus enough time on is, well, what does it mean to live as a Christian in this world now before I actually get to heaven? In the past, there was actually a lot of time spent on this question. And this is a book I've brought with me, written by a 17th century pastor called Richard Baxter. Um, it's called The Practical Works of Richard Baxter, a Christian directory. Um, this is the size of a print. This has got everything about Christian living. Um, one and a quarter million words. Um, I thought we'd just start page one this evening and um, read uh, through it. It is a serious thing, isn't it? How do we live the Christian life? At LCBC, we've identified gospel living as one of our, our mission statements. You know, we want to see lives changed by Christ. And in order to do that, we want to um, equip each other, as it says here, to love Christ wholeheartedly and to live out the gospel in all of life. And this letter to the Thessalonians is a great letter for helping us to understand how we should be living, what that looks like in practice. Up to now in the letter, Paul has uh, looked back at what has happened in Thessalonica, how the gospel message came with uh, great power, how the gospel ministry that uh, he and his uh, companions lived out was full of compassion, of, uh, of encouragement. And at the end of chapter 3, he finished with a prayer for their growth in Christian maturity. But now in, in chapter 4, there's a mood shift as we turn to instruction. What does that mean in everyday life? And the first thing we see is that living a gospel life means pleasing God. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4 that, uh, that Jeff read for us. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Back in, in chapter 3, you remember Paul had said, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. He is the one we need to please. And as we seek to please God, we're actually following the example of Jesus Christ. Remember um, what he said in John 8, he said this, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Now we're not talking here about pleasing God to earn his favour, to earn his salvation. It is pleasing God in order to show our gratitude for the fact that we have been saved. It is living to please God to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. As James says in his letter, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. If we're not living lives that please God, then our faith cannot be alive, it cannot be real. 
But before we become a little bit discouraged by that and start to wonder, I wonder if my faith is really real, have a look at what Paul says next. Because he says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now, Paul and his uh, companions, when they were in Thessalonica, they'd given instructions to these new believers. And they acknowledged they are following them. They are doing this. But now they're saying, let's do this more and more. In other words, it's not like there's a standard to achieve before you can be sure your faith is genuine. The mere fact that you're trying to live a life pleasing to God demonstrates that it is genuine. That it is the desire of your heart to please him. And twice Paul says, in fact, that is what you are doing. In verse 1 he says that. And later in verse 10 he says, in fact, you do love each other. So be encouraged, he's saying. Don't beat yourselves up. But on the other hand, it's also a challenge not to be complacent. He's saying, don't ever think that you've made it as a Christian, that you've grown as much as you can. Don't ever think that you've, you've got it sussed now. Don't ever think you know, that all, you know all there is to know about Christian living. The discipleship group that I've been meeting uh, this year have been following a Bible overview over the last few weeks, and an invitation was put out to others to, who would like to join them in that. Uh, this is a group of, of new believers, and a number of more mature believers said, actually, yes, I would like to, believe, to join them, um, because I'm not satisfied with my understanding of the Bible. I want to, to grow and deepen my knowledge. They're thirsting to know God more and more, and that should be true for each one of us. By the way, if you're wondering on what authority Paul gave these instructions, he says here, we gave them by the authority of the Lord Jesus in verse 2. And so these instructions are relevant for those in Thessalonica then, they're relevant for us today. They carry the authority of Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to please God, though, if that's what we want to do? Well, there are three areas of Christian living that Paul uh, focuses on, which he thinks the, the Thessalonians need to be reminded of. And they concern the areas of sex, work, and death. Some of the key areas of concern are to people today, whether they are Christians or not. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonian believers, the attitude you demonstrate in these key areas reveals your faith in Jesus. Now we're going to look at two of these tonight and the third one um, next week when we come on to Gospel Hope. But let's start with the first of those because living a gospel life we, we uh, read here means being sexually pure. Now, we live, um, as you know, in a, in a fairly sexually promiscuous society um, where pretty much anything goes. And it would be easy to assume that, that things couldn't possibly have been as bad in those days. Things must have just got progressively worse over time. But in actual fact, historians will tell us that they probably were a lot worse then because, um, first of all, some of the Greek and the Roman gods uh, were worshipped as gods associated with sex and beauty, fertility. Women in those days had a lower social status. 
slavery was, was widespread. And so it was common for, for men to have mistresses, to have uh, concubines, to, to use the services of prostitutes. Uh, and the role of the wife became to, to manage the household and to bring up children. And Paul is telling the, the Thessalonians here, look, you are different now. That is, should not be the same for you. And he says in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And in verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. In the same way that God is holy, set apart from his creation, Christians should be different from those around them. Unlike the pagans, we're told here, who, who do not know God, as Christians we do know God. Now within uh, Paul's um, uh, instruction about God's general will for us to please him, um, he's pretty specific about what that means with regards to the area of sex. He says you should avoid sexual immorality. And there's a big contrast he makes here between sex which is holy and honourable and in which self-control is exercised and sex which is driven by by passionate lust, and as it says here, may lead to, the, to taking advantage of a brother or sister. Now, what is, he, what is he getting at here? Well, lust is allowing your, your physical desire to drive your actions. It's about pleasing yourself. And it doesn't therefore respect other people. The implication of that is you sleep with whomever you want uh, to satisfy your, your sexual urges, which is what the sexual revolution of the 60s was, was about. Um, it's often portrayed as liberating. Um, have sex with whomever you want. But it fails to recognize that sex is more than just about physical urges. It's a deeply intimate act, which involves emotions and the whole person. And for Paul to say control your own body is not to say you cannot have sex, but it's saying enjoy it within its right context. A loving, committed relationship. Enjoy it within marriage. And to find that spelt out, um, if we turn briefly to 1 Corinthians 7, um, he's more specific in his instructions here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, says, uh, Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Then on in verse verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now what we see here is a heterosexual marriage is the God-given context for sex. And within that context, it's not just for one's own pleasure, it's a giving of, of one's whole self to the other for his or her pleasure. And if the whole relationship is healthy, if there's a deep understanding of the intimacy between the husband and wife, then sex is a physical expression of that love and, and demonstrate, demonstrates an unselfish respect for the, for the other. Now, sadly, there are many marriages where this is not the case, where 
The relationship is not healthy and therefore where the sex won't be healthy either. And at its extreme, it, it can lead to physical and emotional abuse going on. Some of you, I'm sure, will have heard of the, the film and the, the book Fifty Shades of Grey, which has been uh, uh, a massive bestseller. It's been a box office hit as well. I must admit I haven't read it or seen it, but I've read reviews about it. And it's frightening, not just because of the, just the sexual immorality it portrays, but the fact that an abusive sexual relationship is portrayed as, as normal. Uh, and people are reading uh, and watching it as entertainment, um, even fantasizing about it. And you have to ask yourself, what is it saying to, to men in terms of how they should relate to women? What is it saying to women in terms of how they should expect men to, to relate to them? Paul is saying here, control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. And he goes on, in this matter... No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Uh, that may be within marriage, as we've, we've said, or it may refer to having sex with someone outside of marriage, or, uh, referring to adultery. And of course, when people do commit adultery, what are they thinking about? It's, um, it's themselves, isn't it? They're failing to realize the repercussions that will have for other people, whether their own husband or wife, um, whether the children involved, extended families, if it happens in the church, it can be, can be devastating. And ultimately, the glory of God is affected as those who call themselves Christians bring his name into dishonor. And that is why Paul says here, look, he says, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Living a gospel life means being sexually pure. Now, you may be thinking here, well, okay, it's okay for you to, to say that you're married, but what about those who are single, those who are widowed? Um, how do you control your body in a way that is holy and honorable in that situation? Now, I agree that it, it is harder. Um, but simply because it's harder doesn't mean these instructions don't apply. In fact, they will be even more important because the temptations will be greater. John Stott, who was um, someone who remained uh, single for the whole of his life uh, and yet led a very fulfilling life, uh, he, wrote, he wrote this. We too, talking about him as a single person, must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem, as God's good purpose for us and for, and for society. We shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided that we submit to it. And then he goes on to make quite a positive suggestion. He says, it is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this alongside a natural loneliness, accompanied sometimes by acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people. But whatever age or stage we are at in life, we need to be better equipped to be able to respond to what society is saying um, and where it is 
in regard to sex. We are going to be doing a short series um, next month with the following titles. Finding Freedom in Christ in a World Obsessed with Sexual Image, in a World Obsessed with Sexual Fulfillment, and in a World Obsessed with Sexual Orientation. So hopefully uh, we'll have a lot of the young people here as well, and um, we'll be able to look at those big key issues for, for us as Christians in terms of how we respond to society. But let's move on to the other issue that Paul deals with here, because it's that of work. And um, what we see here is that living a gospel life means working hard. It's a key theme in Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica. And if we look over the page in chapter 5, um, verse 12, Paul there praises those who, who work hard. He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you who care for you in the Lord and to admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And he also says in verse 14, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. If you go on to the second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 3, have a look at verse 11, what it says there. It's the same, same point. He says, We hear that some among you are idle, and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. As we go back to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, it doesn't appear to be those who are unable to find work, he's criticizing here, but those who have a poor attitude towards work. Those who would rather that others did the work, and they just sponged off them. And the trouble is when people don't have much to do, they, they become um, disruptors. There's a great temptation to become busybodies, to complain about others. Now, commentators have come to different conclusions about why these um, Thessalonians might not be working, why they've got this uh, attitude towards work. Uh, and the most common view is that they mistakenly believed that the second coming was imminent. And therefore, why bother working? Because Jesus is going to come tomorrow. Um, sit back and relax. But Paul's warning to them is presented, if you look here, in terms of, as Christians, they should love one another. Look at verse 9. And he says, he knows that they do really love one another, but what they don't seem to realise is that if you're refusing to work, that has an impact on other people. If you're not working yourself, you're, you're living off the work of others. You're being a, a parasite. You're not being loving. And so he's saying, get your head down, be productive, and use your time and your talents. Well, why should we work? Um, I'm just a very brief sort of a biblical theology of work here for a minute. So if, you could, if you were to go back to, uh, to Genesis, you know, we're told... Um, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything in them. And then it says this, it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. God created people. And we're told in chapter 2 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So what work is about here is it's about creating, it's about maintaining God's work was to create something out of nothing. Our work as humans is to take what God has made 
and to shape it and to use it for good purposes. Now that good purpose may simply be the delight we take in making something, in creating something. You know, art in, uh, in all its forms is a type of work, being creative. And as we saw Holiday Home this week, you know, the, the elderly there got stuck into flower arranging, into making jewellery boxes and, and cards. Um, Saturday morning the toddlers came along for boy box and they were making jewellery boxes as well. Um, in different generations, but the same God-given delight in making stuff. Work is, uh, is also about making things that are useful. So we have engineers who, who, who make and uh, design things, things that help us in everyday life, um, designing places to live, means of transport, means of uh, communication, means of changing the earth's raw materials into something productive. We have farmers who, who um, make the earth productive, so we have food to eat and all sort of other people who make sure the food gets to, to us. Now, in some societies, people um, just produce what they need to survive. They have to work hard to do that. In other societies, they will make stuff and then exchange it for other stuff that they need, the, the whole bartering thing. Of course, more commonly in our societies, we, we produce something, we earn money, we use the money to go and buy something else that we need. But the key thing is being productive with our time. Because if we're working conscientiously using the gifts that God has given us so that others may benefit and God is glorified, that's when we experience that sense of joy and purpose. And it's not just about paid employment. It's just using our time productively. And that is one of the reasons why Paul calls the Thessalonians to work. Have a look at verse 12, one of the reasons he gives for doing that. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. In other words, those who are not believers will respect the hard work of believers. And God will be glorified. Your attitude to, to your work is a way of witnessing to, to others about your faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't time waste, if you don't focus just on your personal career advancement like most people will, if you have time for others, if you don't badmouth your boss or your employer when things aren't going so, so well, that will have an impact on your colleagues. They will, they will ask you, you know, why? why are you not responding like everybody else is doing? We can win the respect of outsiders in our attitude to, to work. We can also lose the respect of outsiders. Verse 12 also gives another reason so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And I think it's important here to remember that not all work will be satisfying or fulfilling. Uh, you know, even if you're doing your dream job, there will be parts of it that are frustrating and tiring and stressful. When we think about changing jobs, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Why is that? Because we live in a fallen world. Um, before the, the fall, people lived in a, in a garden uh, where they had all the food they needed. Uh, it was on trees. God had provided. They just needed to pick the fruit and enjoy it. Work then wasn't about survival. They were free to use their time in creative pursuits. They didn't need to worry about food and clothing. 
But after the, the fall, God made work harder to remind us that things are not right when there is sin in the world. And things won't be right until Jesus comes again. People chose to be self-reliant. They, they rejected God's provision. And, and so God subjected them to the things that they chose. God subjected them to toil and sweat. They wanted to be self-reliant. And that involved toil and sweat. So by working, we do now have to provide for our needs. And uh, that is why Paul is warning the idle. If you're not providing for your needs, you're not pulling your weight. You're being dependent on somebody else. Or coming back to the command to love one another. Another reason why we should work is not just to avoid sponging uh, off others. It's to be able to provide for those who are in need. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. We don't love others in order to get something in return. And so working to provide for the needs of others, those who are not able to work, is a way of showing love to them. Well, there's a lot um, we could say about work, and we'll have to return that to that another time. But as we finish this evening, a key message that comes out of this passage is let's seek to please God in everything. Um, let's seek to live out the gospel in our lives. Uh, and let's seek to do that more and more. Let's not be happy with, with where we're at. And particularly in these areas of, uh, of sex and work. God has given us instructions in his Bible. And if we follow them, follow them wholeheartedly, we will be blessed and be a blessing to others. And God's name will be glorified. This is a moment of quiet to just reflect on, on that. Think about um, your own life, your attitude to, to others. Confess any struggles you may have. Ask for God's help. Think about how you use your time. Is it a productive use of time? Is it able to show love to others? This is a moment of quiet. Father God, we thank you for the instructions you've given us in your word to live to, to please you, to love one another. And as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, he said, just as you are already doing. And we, we thank you for the way people in this church are living to please you. Thank you for the way they are loving one another. They are working hard for your glory's sake. But Lord, Paul also writes to do that more and more. And so we do pray that we wouldn't be complacent, we wouldn't be satisfied with where we're at, that we would want to grow in our desire to please you, to live a pure and honourable and holy lives, to work hard for the sake of others and for, for you. 
Lord, we can't do that in our own strength. We rely on you for that, and so we do pray that your spirit would give us the strength to do that. That we would never tire, we would never become fed up of, uh, of working and serving you. We would never be fed up of loving one another. Lord, help us not to be idle, but to use our days productively for your glory's sake. Amen.